One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And this week, dialing in, I have a father and daughter who clearly pull no punches with each other when it comes to a full and frank conversation. She is a stand-up comedian and the author of Amazing Disgrace, a book about shame. He left political journalism to help the Labour Party to victory as Tony Blair's former press secretary and then director of communications and strategy and sat at the heart of power with the ability to influence decisions, control news and ultimately win in general elections. In fact, such is his strength of character that it's widely believed that he is the inspiration for foul-mouthed spin doctor Malcolm Tucker in the BBC's The Thick of It. He's also a writer and author, having just released his eighth volume of his political diaries. This one covers 2010 to 2015 and it's called The Rise and Fall of Olympic Spirit. He's also a tireless campaigner, most notably around mental health having suffered a nervous breakdown in 1986 and ever since severe bouts of depression. It's something his daughter really understands, having most recently sadly been there herself. Oh, and together they host a podcast called Football Feminism and Everything in Between, where they bicker, share and challenge one another, much as they do throughout this episode. So enjoy. It's Alistair and Grace Campbell. Ah, hello both. Thank you so much for joining me and bearing with the inevitable technicals of life in lockdown. How are you both? I'm good. I'm good. I'm bored, but I'm fine. Surviving. I'm average. You're average. (laughs) No, I'm worse than average. I'm I'm having, I have these days where 
I'm in such a rage at this government. I can't even begin to tell you. I'm in such a rage. And it drives Grace mad because it's all she ever hears. But, you know, some days I manage to hide it reasonably well. But today I'm having one of those days when I just, I, I loathe them so much. They're, they sort of managed to combine venality and incompetence, which is a horrible mix. I mean, Grace, you look completely nonplussed by this, but I, I, I need to ask what, today what has incited such such rage for anyone listening on to on the podcast i am basically asleep listening to my dad talk about this i think it's a, a combination of things really it's the fact that it's the utter nauseating hypocrisy of pretty patel on the one hand standing up in the house of commons to say we must do to, more to protect women at protests and protect women on the streets and then immediately afterwards he's bringing in a policing bill which is going to take away even more rights to peaceful protest. And I think the country is just not woken up yet to the reality of what a truly hideous government this is. Um, and then it's, you, you, you I, I sort of think, well, I'll, I won't, I didn't watch the news at lunchtime. And then I sort of go, and there's Johnson out again in a bloody yellow jacket announcing more money for buses, all about the local elections. The money will never happen, by the way. And I just, so there you go. Yeah, venality and incompetence. But the one thing they do all the time is just political messaging. And I can see right through it. What does venality mean? Venal, I don't know what it literally means, but it means really kind of awful and badly motivated. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> If, if, if you're a regular listener to your podcast, some people will understand how and why you've responded in the way that you have, because you're almost Alistair numb, aren't you? You're numb to your dad. Well, I think, honestly, I get it. I, I don't disagree with anything he's saying. I just think there's either dad go into politics because then you can do something about it. Or you can't get so irate about it because unfortunately when you're on the outside, there is virtually nothing you can do. I get why you get so angry because you were once in it. But just to expel that much energy about something you have no control over, I think is quite unhealthy. So that's why I, you know, I sit here and I'm like, obviously I agree. I don't think what Pretty Patel's trying to do today is it's awful. Obviously it's awful, but you know, we can, I've signed the petition. I've spoke, shouted about it online. I'm not going to let it ruin my day. But Alistair, you can't, you don't have that, you don't have that control over how you feel, do you? It has ruined your day. You've got, I don't agree that just because you don't go a certain route, it means you suddenly have to sort of pipe down. And also maybe if Grace's mum had not been so insistent about me leaving politics in the first place, then, it, you know, life could have been different. Who knows? Um, partly because apparently of all the pressures I was putting on the children. So, you know, I think that... Um, I'll just, you know, keep on raging. And eventually this this thing can't this thing has to go somewhere. You can't have a situation where you've got so many people are so wound up and yet they're still ahead in the polls and yet they're still doing whatever they want to do. They've locked us up for a year and they're twelve points ahead in the polls. Honestly, five minutes in and this is if I was listening to this, I just would want to switch off for my self care. <laughs> well don't do um, a podcast with me then. Don't I'm get somebody else to do your bloody podcast with. I, I am quite interested in your dad's answer. Truly, I am. I'm also laughing at the fact that you've decided, you've described uh, the situation whereby you are no longer in politics because Grace's mum said. 
I love that you completely pushed it over to Grace and to Fiona that you should come out of politics because of the pressure it puts on the kids. Alistair, you need to go back. I, mean, I was exaggerating to make a point, but the point is real. Yeah, but the point is that you think that if you were sitting in politics, none of this would be happening, which, which maybe that is true. But we don't do what ifs in our family. I thought you knew that. Sorry, you do nothing but what ifs. I, my <laughs> least favourite phrases are should have, could have, would have, what if. I never, ever do that, ever. If you knew me, you'd know that. It's like part of my rule book. I never, ever think about it. Well, I don't know you. I, just, I, obviously don't, I obviously don't know you. No, not well enough, clearly. No. And yet, interestingly, if I was to speak to your wife and your mother, Grace, um, your Fiona, she would say that you two are inherently alike. Yes, which is why we almost have gotten into a row already, 10 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> Not even 10. Not even 10. No, we are alike. We are alike. But we're also very different. I don't get this obsessive about things. Alistair, before we get started, I, I wanted to say a personal thank you to you because many, many, many moons ago, um, gosh, early 90s, I started in journalism and I took a work placement on the, de- on the mirror and was given a job there and eventually got moved over to the daily and I was an editorial assistant and for me having been raised reading the mirror at a time when it really was the working man's paper um you know I I knew exactly who you were before I joined I knew your picture byline I read your political column and then I got there and for me it was like walking into Madame Tussauds for journalism because Paul Foote was there you were there and Anne Robinson and (laughs) Of all the people I served coffee and tea to, you you were lovely. Thank you so much. You you I was oh. very scared of you and you gave me no reason to fear you. <laughs> um, and yes, you were a bit of a grizzly bear, but you looked like the Andrex puppy next to Anne Robinson. Let's just leave it there. Oh, she's fierce, yeah. Oh, don't want to get her tea about wrong. Her. I love that about her. Grace, you'd hate it about me if I was not nice to the people serving the tea and the coffee. No, yeah. I know, but that I'm, you know, people always say that to me that when they met you, they were pleasantly surprised by how nice you are. Yeah, and they also flex. say that about Piers Morgan, don't they? Mm, let's not get into Piers, <laughs> otherwise, me and Dad will really have a fight. <laughs> um, both of you are out uh, at the moment with new books. Grace, yours has been out a little while now. Um, Alistair, volume eight of your memoirs. I mean, the word count on your diaries is ridiculous. You're up there with the Bible. Yeah, it's a bit long, actually. Um, this one's 800 pages. What? Covers five years, though. Yeah. From that, Grace, I'm guessing you've not read it. <laughs> no. I sent it to her. No, you didn't. You sent me the I index. Did. I sent it. He always just sends around the index. I sent the whole book to you and to Rory and to Callum. Dad, you know I they don't know how to read. They came back within a few days and said, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You didn't come back, so I assume it's all fine. Fiona and the kids are allowed a bit of a red pen. Really? How much How much ink are they allowed? Uh, well, they're allowed. I mean, you know, it would be up to and including, no, you can't do the book. Um, right. So this one, this one, for example, a lot of it is, well, obviously it's mainly political stuff, but in terms of the family, Callum, who's uh, Grace's, our second son and Grace's older brother, um, he was kind of descending into alcoholism. So there's a lot of that in there. So I said to him, listen, you, if you don't want any of it in, you just tell me. And he was fine. He, he had one or two comments about other people, um, but he was about himself. He was fine. He actually went, he celebrated yesterday eight years without a drink, thank God. Yeah, but I don't need a red pen because I literally couldn't give a shit about what you say about me. Mm, that's true, actually, Grace. 
you and your mum are the two women in your father's life, right? They both felt at times that there was a, a sense of um, having to compete with Tony. Yes, it's why I'm always very jealous of my boyfriends talking to other women. Tony Blair, that's who I blame. What, is that why it is? That's why I have such bad issues of jealousy. That's what my therapist says. Although Fiona at the time, she was very angry about a lot of the time about me doing the job. She's not a jealous person, though. It wasn't about jealousy. It was about genuinely about the impact on her and the family. Yeah, yeah mum's like the least jealous person in the world. I envy that. Yeah, I mean, you've you've said before, Grace, that um, you've stood and chatted at functions when women are throwing themselves sort of in your father's direction and the two of you just stand back and laugh and she's like, they're welcome. Yeah, she d- doesn't care at all. I wish I was like that. I think she'd care a bit if it went No, I think, that, I think it's because she knows it would never happen. That's because you have yeah, a pretty secure you. relationship. Yeah. So that's yeah. sweet. Totally. Good for you guys. Well done both. Because actually when you consider the stress that you've lived under during the majority of your time together, that is quite an achievement, Alistair. Yeah, well, you know, we. I think we both had, both came from parents that, you know, who had pretty solid marriages. And I, I mean, there was, a, there was a couple of times when I thought it might be kind of, you know, really rock bottom. And, and actually there was a time, I think I said in a previous book, where I actually, I feel really bad about this, but I actually sat down with Rory because he was the oldest. And he was in his teens by then. And I said, do you think you'd be better? Do you think you'd be happier if mum and I weren't together? Because we're always rang all the time. And he said, no, what are you on about? And that was that. Rory's, Rory's, Rory's sort of good at very short, snappy judgments. Um, but we were definitely thinking about it as, as a couple of times. Yeah, and I think those pressures, but, you know, to be honest, I, I often, when people talk about pressures, I think, you know, at the moment, if you're like a public sector worker who's also mm. trying to homeschool three kids and, you know, you don't know where you're next, you know, and you're in debt and all that, that's pressure to me. Yeah, and then you're yeah. stuck with your partner all the time as well. Mm. Yeah. Or if you're in a relationship where you're being, you know, physically abused. Grace, you talk about having gone to your therapist and, and spoken about everything, really. And you and your dad are, are both prolific when it comes to raising awareness around mental health. Does Tony, does Tony Blair, can I ask this, does Tony Blair feature a lot in your in your, your therapy? No, I definitely at the beginning. I mean, it was a lot. It had a lot of an impact on my relate my relationship with jealousy and my insecurities and my relationship with myself and wanting desperately to be a man and be like men and be someone that sort of my dad would give that level of attention to so be like Tony Blair but also compete with Tony Blair it gave me this really weird complex I think where basically I, I explain it like this where at all times I'm both incredibly arrogant and insecure at the same time at all times. You'd make a great politician with those attributes. That's so true. Not sure. But listen, Grace, don't you think, can I ask a question with my daughter, Kate? Yeah, of course. I sometimes do, because I don't do stand-up comedy like you do, but I do do sort of after-dinner speaking and sort of you're trying to make people laugh and stuff. Don't you think sometimes that you you take situations and you actually shape them to fit things that are going to suit your life? Like, no, you know, because people this... laugh at this was years before I started doing comedy. I was doing therapy. I don't remember you really pushing this stuff out there and still you started to do comedy about it. Have you ever told Tony that you feel like this about him or have felt like this about him? Because I know that um, he has called you in the past to apologise. <laughs> well, he no, he, I definitely actually have. I remember uh, not in the funeral, but at some point during Tessa Giles' funeral, <laughs> I had a conversation with him about it. And he finds it hilarious, obviously. 
Um, but I've never, I was going to send him the book and then I kind of pussied out of doing it because I got a bit worried about... What, the one of you sat him. on a phallically shaped clown? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think I sent it to him. Did you? I think so. I think he definitely sent me a message about it, whether he'd read something about it, but he, he said something like, you know, thank God it's your daughter right and this is not mine. Yeah, that was it. I remember that. I remember that. Mm. Yeah, his son's gone on to make something like seventy-three billion on a startup, hasn't he? No way. <laughs> yeah. He's certainly Which made son? a lot, but I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, Which son, Alistair? You. Yeah, but he's. Yeah, but he's doing. Wait, Google it. He's, he's doing a thing where he's he's linking young people without jobs into you know apprenticeships and stuff like that. He's, wow. He's a great guy. Yeah. yeah like no, it's. It's a so it is literally a social enterprise, is it not? Or have I got that wrong, Alistair? Yeah, I think so. But it's like, and he's, but also I don't know, you know, these stories anything to do with Tony and money. The papers will sort of flam it for all it's worth. But it was the Financial Times said he was, you know, his company is now worth a lot of money. Yeah, lots and lots and lots and lots. Yeah, he's good for him. Wealthier, he's wealthier than uh, certainly most prime ministers. Put it that way. Not difficult wow. to do in this day and age. Yeah. Um, so normally on White Wine Question Time, we would, for those that drink, share a glass of wine with each question. Oh, Alistair, I know it's been a long time since a drop has passed those lips of yours. No, no, no. No, drops, he drinks. You drink again? I, when I did a, a documentary about alcoholism, I, I decided I should... I mean, I went 13 years without touching it at all. Mm -hmm. And I do drink moderately, which I don't... I, I know I shouldn't in a way. But I think what I've decided about myself is that I'm not an alcoholic. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an obsessive personality and with an addictive personality, and it was once alcohol. But that's not a good message for alcoholics. So. Well, I'm not sure about that. I actually think that that's a good new. You know, it doesn't have to be one size fits all because I don't think AA is for everyone. I know lots of people who are addicts who have tried AA and found it like not the right approach and actually their approach is more addressing what's going on in their mental health and in their lives and trauma wise dealing with that and then hopefully as a result their addictions will change yeah but i don't like the idea of somebody listening to this who is i know, you know who's decided they're never going to drink again and saying to themselves oh well he managed it so i'll do that uh, i that's why i always say i don't recommend this and it's really strange how i did when i first had a drink in 1999, so I stopped in 86, and I, and I was so proud of going 13 years. I used to literally count the days into the thousands. Um, and it was almost like an accident. I just picked up this glass and I drank it, and it was just weird. The first time you returned to drink, you just, what, swooped No, I didn't. Up. I just I, I drank it, and then, then I put it down, and then I thought, well... So I, I didn't finish the drink, but I drank it more than one sip, as it were, and then I thought, phew... What's, you know, what's all the fuss about in, in terms of a, I don't want to do that again kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, when we're on holiday and, you know, Fiona just was having a glass of wine. I said, oh, I'll have one. And so and that was like, you know, it's just a straight. I think we all have our own relationship and I've sort of developed this relationship. I don't think I'll. I mean, my kids have never seen me drunk, I don't think. No, I, I, that's what I was going to say. I've never seen you drink more than a couple of glasses of wine. You're able to manage your relationship with drink. Yeah, I think so. But again, I, 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 you know, at one point I clearly wasn't able to manage it, which is why I've got to watch it. My son, <laughs> talking of, by the way, you asked about whether Tony comes up with Gracie's. I see my psychiatrist, Tony Gordon, 
come up a lot. I bet they do. Yeah. Your your therapist said actually that your 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 conversation around Tony was indicative of the fact that in your relationship with Fiona there was a third person. He was so present. He also said, um, and there's definitely something in this. I mean, I think there's a third person in. It's not a third person, but anybody who does a really like if you're married to a, um, I don't know, a head teacher of a school that you're trying to turn around, okay, and that head teacher is going to be on it all the time, and even when they're at the home at the weekend, they're thinking about it. I think there's a lot of relationships like that. They don't have to be in the kind of your big, high-profile political jobs. But he also said, and, and I think this was an interesting observation, that he felt that to some extent, Fiona and I were so close that I felt like she was kind of almost like an extra limb. And that, you know, it was almost like the thought of not, of the thought of us being apart is almost like, you know, I'm losing my limbs. And, I, you know, I kind of, I do think that's, that's about right. I think, uh, you know, I, we, Fiona and I have an agreement that I will die first because I just don't, I'm not sure I could. <laughs> You'll definitely sure become happen. an alcoholic again then. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, to be honest, that's what he thinks. That's what he thinks. He mm. thinks I'm fine at the moment because everything's kind of under control and I've got my life in a better balance. And, and you've got mum. <laughs> she, she would be fine without me in terms of a sort of practical, once you're over the thing, in terms of running her <laughs> life. I, I would be not fine at all. But, well, yeah, but at least you got me. God's sake. Imagine yeah, if we just had sons. <laughs> yeah, the boys don't drive me crazy like you do. Yeah, but I would look after you. Look, when you got dysentery, I was the only person who cared. <laughs> Let's just cut through the Fiona propaganda, shall we? In all my years of podcasting, I've never had that line come up. When you got dysentery, I was the only one that cared. I was the only one, and I took you to the hospital, and I was about 12. Yeah, I think it was, no, I think it was about eight years ago. But I'll tell you what happened, Kate. I was in, the, in a taxi in the Strand. I'd just come back from, a, I'd been to Asia and the Balkans, okay? And I had to go into London for a meeting. I got into the back of a cab to come home. I'd not been feeling well for a couple of hours, and I collapsed on the, on the floor of the cab. Wow. And this, this taxi driver, who was obviously a bit worried about having me die in the back of his cab, <laughs> he said, he said sh sh I'll take you down to St. Thomas's. I said, no, 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 just take me home. Honestly, I don't want to go to hospital. I really don't want to go to hospital. Just take me home. And I was in absolute agony. So I got home and Fiona was there, but she was, funny enough, Tessa Jowell's going to come up again. She was due to go out for dinner with Tessa Jowell and this little group of women that used to meet for, you know, every every few months, right? And they're going out together. And I think Grace was out somewhere, but I've, you know, but Grace is on her way back. So I crawl up to bed. I'm literally, I promise you, I am dying. And Fiona started laughing. I am a little bit of a hypochondriac, right? A little bit. But this was, I, it was obvious to anybody with eyes in there, I was ill. She starts laughing. Grace comes in. Grace starts crying <laughs> and says, Dad's going to die. Anyway, we got the paramedics out. Can, can I just check? Did Fiona still go out or was she, she there? Yeah, yeah, no, she went she out. Went out. <laughs> she went out and I called the, the ambulance. Paramedics. <laughs> yeah. And I was in hospital. Wait, I wanted to tell the story about when you did this exact thing to me. Oh, no, no, Grace, that's not fair. That was a Why joke. Why is that not fair? Why is that not fair? Because you did this joke. exact thing. It, was it, wasn't, it wasn't a joke. I was in absolute agony. I, I broke my leg in France and I had to have this operation. I was staying in the hospital because I was like, 
15, dad had to stay there with me because he spoke fluent French. So we were lying there and they, and he got the bed with the view. So it was this, it was this hotel, it was this hospital room. And one of the beds had a view of Mont Ventoux, which is an amazing, gorgeous mountain in the south of France. So dad got that bed and I was looking at a plain white wall and my leg was hanging up with a blood bag hanging down from it. And I woke up and I was in so much pain. And I said to dad, dad, could you go and get the nurses? I need more painkillers. I'm in so much pain. I just had loads of metal put in my leg. And he just goes, oh, Grace, just go back to sleep. I'm trying to sleep, darling. <laughs> the view, what, both beds had a view through the window. No, my bed is I slept in that room window. for two weeks. Your bed had a balcony door of Mon Mon and my bed looked at a wall. Grace, this is what I mean. You just, there was no balcony door. There was. I've, got, I've got a picture of me on the balcony no. with a Zimmer frame. I've got an actual picture. On my Facebook, no, you so you can shut me. <laughs> Alistair, you did a really lovely TED talk entitled The Worst Things That Happen Are Often The Best. I love finding the positive in the negative. So can you tell me of a time for each other when that's been true for you? Well, when Grace was at... She went to university in Paris and she didn't like it and she was having panic attacks and stuff and it was a really bad time. She was having a really bad, really bad time. And I remember she phoned me at one point and said she was hating. And I just said, well, why don't you just, you know, I'm not really, a, I don't jack things in in the main, but it was obvious to me it was making her really unhappy. I said, just pack it in. Let's find something you want to do. And she came back to London and, and she's never looked back. Went and found yeah. a course she wanted to do. and He's right. That doesn't tally up with your attitude to life at all Alistair so it's unusual that you would give advice to your daughter that you probably wouldn't take yourself no I think I would I think if something like that I, I wouldn't want to give up something that I felt was really really worthwhile but also I think what he's saying is like it was it was more on a mental health level my mental health was the worst that it's ever been you know I don't think I'll ever be in a place as bad as I was then I was really thought I was gonna die and I was, had a complete nervous breakdown and and that you understand, you know, it's like when you had your breakdown, you you did lose your job and you did have to sort of start again a bit, Dad. So I think, yeah, you, you understood that, that you, you kind of, in those moments, you actually can't carry on. You need to just be back at home with your friends and family. Um, and I just needed to be at home. I needed to be with my friends. Funny, I feel quite confident because I, I have, Grace has always been very good at kind of, you know, she's very, very upfront about how she's feeling and, what's going on. So I, I didn't feel that same sense of wretchedness as I felt, for example, there were times, for example, when when Callum was really bad with drink and I, I just couldn't see a way out of it. Um, I thought it was just going to end up with us getting a you know really horrible phone call in the middle of the night. Um, whereas I just felt, I don't know, I felt, I felt with grace that it would, I felt it would work out. And I, and I sort of sensed, I think the reason she phoned me probably at that day rather than Fiona, other than the fact that Fiona quite often doesn't answer the phone. That's bullshit. I call I call I call mum about fifteen times a day when I was there. No, I no, but I'm saying that you call me that I wonder whether you call me then because you maybe sensed that I sensed you really, really wanted to come back. Uh but you want to you didn't want to sort of admit defeat. But I didn't I think you can admit admitting defeat to things that don't it doesn't matter if you win or not, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that's something that I've, I never felt worried about, truly. I, that didn't feel like a failure to me. And I was very lucky to be in a position to be able to 
quit university and come back because you know loads of I had friends there who wanted to do the same thing but they their family didn't have enough money for that to be a possibility but I would say when I look back on that period I, I don't look back on it with a sort of oh, I'm happy that happened it was really really scary I mean I, it was the only time in my life that I've been truly suicidal it made me a much stronger person it meant I dealt with a lot of stuff in my life that I needed to deal with but but and I'm I'm grateful for that. I'm not grateful for it happening, but I'm happy that I'm where I am now. You know, this is my philosophy with breakups as well, because I've just gone through a really long and, and heart-wrenching breakup. And you, it, as horrible as it is, you come out of it much stronger and you come out of it knowing yourself better. All of these experiences make you know yourself better and make you feel much more capable when you know, shit hits the fan, you know that you're going to be able to deal with it. And so that was a first for me, being in Paris alone and having bad mental health. But now when I'm abroad and I'm alone and I have bad mental health, I know it's going to be fine. Like, I know that it's shit, but I know I'll deal with it. And I think it's the same with heartbreak. I know now that if I go through another breakup, I will be fine because it was, like, the first big one. So I think that's what that's the insight you take from it. God, this is turning into a therapy session. I do think that I, th I think where things sometimes can maybe come later in life so I had the breakdown and it was really kind of difficult and I, I honestly thought my life was over I thought Fiona was bound to leave me I'd lose my job I'd never get back on the horse you know it was it was over um and then I think years later when I was you know working in pretty high profile and a lot of pressure and a lot of antagonism and a lot of people trying to you know basically out to get me um, and some days I can remember, let's mention Tessa Jowell again. I remember once Tessa phoned me up on, on a day that like the papers were absolutely, you know, trying to kill me. And, um, she was like, I don't know how you cope with this. I don't know how you put up with this. It's just so awful. And I said, well, I'll t and I, I, I don't know whether this is post facto rationalization, but I, I remember saying to her, I'll tell you how I cope with it. I compare it with what I felt like when I was psychotic and going completely insane. And it doesn't, once I have that in my head, it doesn't matter what the Daily Mail, what the Daily Telegraph, what the Sun, what they say about you. It just doesn't matter. And that, you know, that builds resilience and that builds strength. And that provides your yardstick by which you measure the rest of your life. So when you've been to that absolute low, once you've been there, everything else is measurable. But I don't want anybody to think that in any way I'm advocating that you need to go through an absolute life and death experience to be able to deal with life, because that's not what I'm saying. No, but um, we, all have to deal, we all have to deal with death, don't we? I mean, you know, the last book I wrote about my depression, there's a lot of grief in there because I've lost a lot of people, that have, you know, friends who have died young, family and two brothers who've died young. And, you know, but... <laughs> In a way, I mean, you know, the, the the whole thing about the first time that you lose somebody to death, you think it's like just going to be in, before it happens. You think it's going to be unimaginably painful, and then it is. But then you get over it, and you know, life goes on, and then it happens again. And every time's horrible, but somehow every time you you get through it. And of course, if you've been through it before, you you find it easier to get through the next time. Well, Grace, you still have an evidence for me when you think the worst of times has proven to be arguably the best of times for your dad. Well, I always say Iraq, the Iraq war nearly broke up my parents and then Brexit brought them back together. Um, and that's why they're in such a good place now, because my parents' relationship is a lot of it. They bond over politics and anger towards what things that are happening. 
So I would say for him, politics has been the worst of times and the best of times. And it brought him and my mum really close. It, it forged their relationship and meant that he had such a good relationship with her parents as well because my mum's dad was really political and I think it, it meant that he became such a huge part of her family before I met them. But I think, yeah, politics and the journey that he's been on with that. No, that, yeah, I mean, I think the Iraq period was very hard for all sorts of reasons. I never thought we'd break up, um, but, you know, we could have done. And, yeah, Brexit is definitely... We do have very pretty much near-identical views on just how bad it is for the country and for the world. And It was so cute watching you bond over it. I love that, Grace. It's, it's not exactly something you expect to see in the middle of a Clinton's card, is it? No, but... Taking, <laughs> Iraq almost destroyed us, but Brexit brought us back together. Taking, yeah. sky, taking Sky on the people's vote marches. You loved it. You loved going down to the dog, the dog, dogs against Brexit. You loved that. <laughs> Fucking bizarre relationship, but good for you. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Grace, you keep saying your dad doesn't know you, but I'm pretty sure that he does have a general idea about who you are and what floats your boat. So I wondered which facet of each other's personalities would you most like to have for yourself to kind of smooth out your edges or inform better who you are? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I can answer that immediately. The thing that I really would love to have about my dad is how unaffected he is by people hating him and by like, you know, <laughs> trolls and stuff. <laughs> And like when people say shit about him on the street, he it does it genuinely does not bother him. And I wish, you know, I have I have a good sense of that. Like I'm I'm I had to in doing stand up. You have to accept like loads of people aren't going to like you and not everyone's going to love you and, and all of that. 
but he you know that's something I really try when I get like a hater on Instagram or something I just think you know this wouldn't bother my dad so like let it move out of your head right now is it a bit like you know when Christians wear those bracelets to say what would Jesus do is that when you go what would dad do well no it's just I know what he would do he wouldn't care he would say to me shut up why why have you let one person on the internet's opinion of you affect you and I think that's a really really good attitude to have so that's something I definitely you know really admire about him and other stuff but that's the first thing that pops into my head that I think about quite a lot does it really not bother you I mean Alison you've said in your response to Tessa Gell after everything you've been through you let them say what they like about me you have to kind of know who you are and look yourself in the eye right you could be careful I mean I think sometimes and I think actually this does come through a little bit in the diaries where I get more reflective if, if there's a criticism that's coming a lot I can reflect upon it and sometimes you have to do that and you maybe think yeah maybe he or she has got a point there's a bit for example where in this volume where I'm writing about a sort of sense that I'm in danger of losing quite a few important friendships because of certain things that have happened in politics and I'm sort of reflecting on that and it's something that I wouldn't I wouldn't maybe admit that I was reflecting on I'm not going to admit that maybe I went over the top or they went over the top whatever but I'm I'm able to kind of adapt according maybe to criticism that's coming my way. And I think it's important to be able to do that. But no, genuinely, if somebody that doesn't know me, I remember once saying that, you know, if, if I thought my parents thought I was a terrible son and Fiona thought I was, you know, not worth living with and the kids thought I was a terrible father and my friends thought I wasn't a good friend, that would really bother me. That would really, really, really get to me. Um, but some guy who reads the Daily Mail, you know, doesn't, is card-carrying member of the Tory party, voted Brexit, um, you know, doesn't like football. Uh, I'm just not going to care. Why would I care what he thinks about me? And I, I see, I don't think that's... Grace talked earlier about being a mixture of arrogance and insecure. I don't feel that's arrogant. because What it is, is, is not allowing... Uh, I've got my own moral code. I've got my own framework of values. I know what I believe. And I know that I know whose opinion matters to me. And it's a wide enough range of people for me genuinely not to care what some columnist or internet troll says. I mean, there's that saying, isn't there? Why um, why are you trying to be liked by everyone? You don't like everyone. Yeah, exactly. Dad doesn't like anyone. Yeah. <laughs> mm, it's not exactly true. Who do you like, Alistair? If you had to name your top like? three favourite people. Yeah, top three favourite people. What, on the planet? No, I like, I like it a lot. I, I actually, I've, I've got a very, I've got a reputation for being a bit kind of grumpy and stuff. But actually, I, I tend to see the positive in people much more than even my own kids maybe recognise. Um, but I'd say in terms of, I think Fiona's number one. I think, I mean, one thing I've learned during lockdown is, I, there's not many people I could spend literally a year with without wanting to kind of, you know, do something to them or to myself and. <laughs> You know, Fiona and I barely had a day apart. Um, so I think Fiona would be number one. I think Ashley Barnes, the Burnley striker, has got to be right up there. Mm. Um, and then the other Ashley. And Ashley Westwood as well, yeah. yeah. The person I was going to say straight away was uh, was Sid Young, my old mate. He died during the first lockdown. Um, I, like, I like positive, warm clever characters that's what i like and there's plenty of them in the world what's the fast what's the facet of uh, grace's personality that you would most like i think grace has got um an amazing capacity for friendship 
I think she's ever since she's been a little kid, she's had really good friends at every level of her life. And some of them have, you know, stayed the same the whole way through. She's got very, very good friends. And that means you've got a good capacity for friendship. And that's a really, really good quality. I think I've got that, but they, a lot of them die. And that sort of worries me a bit. <laughs> Alistair, in the TED Talks that you gave, you, there was a quote that you used that really resonated with me, and that was, the winner is the loser who evaluates defeat. I love that. And we devote so much of our lives to focusing on what went wrong, especially when you walk in a, you know, a political path in life. So I wondered, could you, with great conviction, highlight just a moment from your own life where you absolutely nailed it and got it right? Let's, let's be positive. 1997 election absolutely that was a total that was that that came from us analyzing previous defeats properly properly how had you done it differently to say your predecessors in order to completely turn around the the, the result and the outcome i think we just i think we just um understood the scale of change that was needed and then worked out the plan to communicate that scale of change from the standpoint of being in opposition um, which is hard. You know, you've seen that with Johnson and Keir now that, you know, it's very hard in opposition to get the attention, to get the, the cut through. But we kind of worked out how to do that. Um, and I think we worked out in part by looking at and genuinely looking at the strengths of our opponents, not just their weaknesses. I think too, too often what people do is they look at their opponents' weaknesses because they're the easy things to go for. And they don't look enough at their strengths and, and genuinely try to analyse why those people are doing better than they should. And to be honest, I think this is why my, my sports obsession is, is actually quite a useful thing. I, I learn an awful lot from talking to and knowing people in sport about how they win. Grace, when do you think that your ability to evaluate life's defeats have enabled you to have a really big winning moment? 1997 election. Yeah, I was right there with him. I was a huge part of that campaign. <laughs> How old would you have been in 1997? I was three. I honestly am literally proud of myself all the time. And I don't take failures as huge losses. I just think about what I should do differently. So my book, doing Edinburgh, everything I've done with Scarlet and the Pink Protest. Um, I guess I think about how amazing it is that I'm capable of doing what I'm doing now, considering how bad my mental health has been at times. I've spent a lot of time over the weekend reading about you both and you sharing your experiences of, of, of your mental health. Something that you, you pointed at, something I took from that, which I think is really important and we need to start reframing the, what is a horribly negative commentary around mental health. Because actually when you look back at the people that have helped to really shape the world that we live in, um, you know, people like Winston Churchill, Florence Nightingale, Abraham Lincoln, they all suffered with mental health issues and actually sometimes that is their point of difference that is their brilliance and we sometimes fail and often fail to celebrate the differences the quirks in a personality that enable you to be a change maker mm. a disruptor totally 100 percent. i think that that edge that really brings about change is often going to come from you know troubled psychology and we've all got it by the way we've certainly all got the capacity for it 
But how do we, ch- I mean, listen, you two have made a huge contribution to informing the conversation around that. And we're at a point now where we've got to stop people being judged around one moment or one episode in their life. You were extended that courtesy, Alistair, by Richard Stott and then by Tony Blair. You know, first time you you had your, when you had your first psychotic episode, your, your, your breakdown, Richard Stott called you, who was the editor of The Mirror at the time, called you in hospital and said, get yourself ready mm. to, to get better, take your time and then come back. And that you described as life-giving. Yeah, totally, totally was. I try and take that attitude to people as well. It's like, you know, I'm looking at a picture of my brother. He was, you know, had schizophrenia and he held the same job down for 27 years because his employer didn't define him by his illness. But I think, I do think the reason that that is changing is because more people are getting an understanding of what that really means and how it doesn't actually affect who you are as an employee it doesn't affect who you are as a person it's just something you're living with and then there's a level of of empathy so you know i don't know what richard stott's experience with mental health had been before that but probably he knew someone else who had been through it and so he understood that it wasn't a defining part of what dad was going to be like as someone that worked for him and i think the more the more we talk about it the more we get to understand that it's not that it's not that different what people go through and i think when you gain a level of empathy you'll you'll be more sort of kind to people that work for you and also people don't understand or if if you've never had an issue with mental health then you're incredibly lucky but life is long and there's no guarantees that that will stay the same throughout the course of your life just because you haven't up until a certain point doesn't mean it won't come and and, and take you under and that's that's what it does so it's important that we're all educated on this and we remember that brilliance comes a lot from a troubled mind correct for those that have enjoyed the bickering between these two don't forget their podcast is available football feminism and everything in between where you get all your podcasts from thank you well that's it for this week thank you so much as always for lending us your ears if you'd like to rate and review us we'd love it especially if you've got nice things to say as always the show is produced by me kate thornton with richard hatherell for yahoo uk editing and co-production comes from callum goddard mocklow and our music as always is provided by andy bell we haven't drunk on this episode but if you are listening with a glass in hand please do as we always try to do and drink responsibly i'll see you next week Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.